0: Chapter Five, Part One of The Teeth of the Tiger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Teeth of the Tiger by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Five, The Iron Curtain. It is sometimes an ungrateful task to tell the story of Arsène Lupin's life, for the reason that each of his adventures is partly known to the public, having at the time formed the subject of much eager comment whereas his biographer is obliged if he would throw light upon what is not known to begin at the beginning and to relate in full detail all that which is already public property it is because of this necessity that i am compelled to speak once more of the extreme excitement which the news of that shocking series of crimes created in france in europe and throughout the civilized world the public heard of four murders practically all at once for the particulars of cosmo mornington's will were published two days later there was no doubt that the same person had killed Cosmo Mornington, Inspector Vérot, Fauville the engineer, and his son Edmund. The same person had made the identical sinister bite, leaving against himself or herself with a heedlessness that seemed to show the avenging hand of fate, a most impressive and incriminating proof, a proof which made people shudder as they would have shuddered at the awful reality, the marks of his or her teeth, the teeth of the tiger. And in the midst of all this bloodshed, at the most tragic moment of the dismal tragedy, behold the strangest of figures emerging from the darkness. An heroic adventurer, endowed with astounding intelligence and insight, had in a few hours partly unravelled the tangled skeins of the plot, divined the murder of Cosmo Mornington, proclaimed the murder of Inspector Vero, taken the conduct of the investigation into his own hands, delivered to justice the inhuman creature whose beautiful white teeth fitted the marks as precious stones fit their settings received a cheque for a million francs on the day after these exploits and finally found himself the probable heir to an immense fortune and here was Arsène lupin coming to life again for the public made no mistake about that and with wonderful intuition proclaimed aloud that don luis perenna was Arsène lupin before a close examination of the facts had more or less confirmed the supposition but he's dead objected the doubters to which the others replied yes dolores kesselbach's corpse was recovered under the still smoking ruins of a little chalet near the luxembourg frontier and with it the corpse of a man whom the police identified as Arsène Lupin. but everything goes to show that the whole scene was contrived by lupin who for reasons of his own wanted to be thought dead and everything shows that the police accepted and legalized the theory of his death only because they wished to be rid of their everlasting adversary as a proof we have the confidences made by Valanglais, who was prime minister at the time, and whom the chances of politics have just replaced at the head of the government. And there is the mysterious incident on the island of Capri, when the German emperor, just as he was about to be buried under a landslip, was saved by a hermit who, according to the German version, was none other than Arsène Lupin. To this came a fresh objection. Very well, but read the newspapers of the time. Ten minutes afterward, the hermit flung himself into the sea from Tiberius's leap. And the answer yes but the body was never found and as it happens we know that a steamer picked up a man who was making signals to her and that this steamer was on her way to algiers well a few days later don luis perenna enlisted in the foreign legion at citabel abbess of course the controversy upon which the newspapers embarked on this subject was carried on discreetly Everybody was afraid of Lupin, and the journalists maintained a certain reserve in their articles, confined themselves to comparing dates and pointing out coincidences, and refrained from speaking too positively of any Lupin that might lie hidden under the mask of Perenna. But as regards the private in the foreign legion, and his stay in Morocco, they took their revenge and let themselves go freely. Major Dastrignac had spoken. Other officers, other comrades of Perenna's, related what they had seen the reports and daily orders concerning him were published. And what became known as the Hero's Idyll began to take the form of a sort of record, each page of which described the maddest and unlikeliest of facts. At Mediuna, on the 24th of March, the adjutant, Captain Pollex, awarded Private Perenna four days' cells on a charge of having broken out of camp past two centuries after evening roll-call, contrary to orders, and being absent without leave until noon on the following day. Perenna, the report went on to say, brought back the body of his sergeant killed in ambush, and in the margin was this note in the colonel's hand. The colonel commanding doubles Private Perenna's award, but mentions his name in orders and congratulates and thanks him. After the fight of Bear Rashid, Lieutenant Fardet's detachment being obliged to retreat before a band of four hundred moors, Private Perenna asked leave to cover the retreat by installing himself in a casbah. How many men do you want, Perenna? None, sir. What?' Surely you don't propose to cover a retreat all by yourself? What pleasure would there be in dying, sir, if others were to die as well as I? At his request, they left him a dozen rifles, and divided with him the cartridges that remained. His share came to seventy-five. The detachment got away without being further molested. Next day, when they were able to return with reinforcements, they surprised the moors lying in wait around the kasbah, but afraid to approach. The ground was covered with seventy-five of their killed. Our men drove them off. They found Private Perenna stretched on the floor of the Casbah. They thought him dead. He was asleep. He had not a single cartridge left, but each of his seventy-five bullets had gone home. What struck the imagination of the public most, however, was Major Comte d'Astrignac's story of the Battle of Darbe de Barre. The Major confessed that this battle, which relieved Fez at the moment when we thought that all was lost, and which created such a sensation in France, was won before it was fought, and that it was won by Perenna alone. At daybreak, when the Moorish tribes were preparing for the attack, Private Perenna lassoed an Arab horse that was galloping across the plain, sprang on the animal, which had no saddle, bridle, nor any sort of harness, and without jacket, cap, or arms, with his white shirt bulging out and a cigarette between his teeth, charged, with his hands in his trousers' pockets. He charged straight toward the enemy, galloped through their camp, riding in and out among the tents, and then left it by the same place by which he had gone in this quite inconceivable death-ride spread such consternation among the moors that their attack was half-hearted and the battle was won without resistance this together with the numberless other feats of bravado went to make up the heroic legend of perenna it threw into relief the superhuman energy the marvellous recklessness the bewildering fancy the spirit of adventure the physical dexterity and the coolness of a singularly mysterious individual whom it was impossible not to take for Arsène lupin but a new and greater Arsène lupin dignified idealized and ennobled by his exploits one morning a fortnight after the double murder in the boulevard suchet this extraordinary man who aroused such eager interest and who was spoken of on every side as a fabulous and more or less impossible being one morning don luis perenna dressed himself and went the rounds of his house it was a comfortable and roomy eighteenth-century mansion situated at the entrance to the faubourg saint-germain on the little place du palais bourbon he had bought it furnished from a rich hungarian count keeping for his own use the horses, carriages, motor-cars, and taking over the eight servants and even the Count's secretary, Mademoiselle Lavassart, who undertook to manage the household and to receive and get rid of the visitors, journalists, bores, and curiosity-dealers, attracted by the luxury of the house and the reputation of its new owner. After finishing his inspection of the stables and garage, he walked across the courtyard and went up to his study, pushed open one of the windows and raised his head. Above him was a slanting mirror, and this mirror reflected, beyond the courtyard and its surrounding wall, one whole side of the Place du Palais Bourbon. Bother! he said, "'those confounded detectives are still there, and this has been going on for a fortnight. I'm getting tired of this spying.' He sat down in a bad temper to look through his letters, tearing up, after he had read them, those which concerned him personally, and making notes on the others, such as applications for assistance and requests for interviews. When he had finished he rang the bell. Ask Mademoiselle Lavassar to bring me the newspapers. She had been the Hungarian Count's reader, as well as his secretary, and Perenna had trained her to pick out in the newspapers anything that referred to him, and to give him each morning an exact account of the proceedings that were being taken against Madame Fauville. Always dressed in black, with a very elegant and graceful figure, she had attracted him from the first. She had an air of great dignity, and a grave and thoughtful face which made it impossible to penetrate the secret of her soul and which would have seemed austere had it not been framed in a cloud of fair curls resisting all attempts at discipline and setting a halo of light and gaiety around her her voice had a soft and musical tone which perenna loved to hear and himself a little perplexed by mademoiselle levasseur's attitude of reserve he wondered what she could think of him of his mode of life and of all that the newspapers had to tell of his mysterious past nothing new he asked as he glanced at the headings of the articles she read the reports relating to madame fauville and don luis could see that the police investigations were making no headway marie fauville still kept to her first method that of weeping making a show of indignation and assuming entire ignorance of the facts upon which she was being examined it's ridiculous he said aloud i have never seen any one defend herself so clumsily still if she's innocent it was the first time that mademoiselle levasseur had uttered an opinion or rather a remark upon the case Don Luis looked at her in great surprise. "'So you think her innocent, mademoiselle?' She seemed ready to reply and to explain the meaning of her interruption. It was as though she were removing her impassive mask and about to allow her face to adopt a more animated expression under the impulse of her inner feelings. But she restrained herself with a visible effort and murmured, "'I don't know. I have no views.' "'Possibly,' he said, watching her with curiosity. "'But you have a doubt.' a doubt which would be permissible if it were not for the marks left by Madame Fauville's own teeth. Those marks, you see, are something more than a signature, more than a confession of guilt, and as long as she is unable to give a satisfactory explanation of this point. But Marie Fauville vouchsafed not the slightest explanation of this or anything else. She remained impenetrable. On the other hand, the police failed to discover her accomplice or accomplices, or the man with the ebony walking-stick and the tortoise-shell glasses whom the waiter at the Café du Pont-Neuf had described to Mazeroux, and who seemed to have played a singularly suspicious part. In short, there was not a ray of light thrown upon the subject. Equally vain was all the search for the traces of Victor, the Roussel sister's first cousin, who would have inherited the Mornington bequest in the absence of any direct heirs. "'Is that all?' asked Perenna. "'No,' said Mademoiselle Lavassar, "'there is an article in the Écho de France.'" Relating to me? I presume so, monsieur. It is called, Why Don't They Arrest Him? (laughs) That concerns me, he said with a laugh. He took the newspaper and read, Why do they not arrest him? Why go against logic and prolong an unnatural situation which no decent man can understand? This is the question which everybody is asking, and to which our investigations enable us to furnish a precise reply. Two years ago, in other words three years after the pretended death of Arsène Lupin, the police having discovered or believing they had discovered that arsène lupin was really none other than one floriani born at blois and since lost to sight caused the register to be inscribed on the page relating to this floriani with the word deceased followed by the words under the alias of arsène lupin consequently to bring arsène lupin back to life there would be wanted something more than the undeniable proof of his existence which would not be impossible the most complicated wheels in the administrative machine would have to be set in motion and a decree obtained from the council of state now it would seem that m valenglay the prime minister together with the prefect of police is opposed to making any too minute inquiries capable of opening up a scandal which the authorities are anxious to avoid bring Arsène lupin back to life recommence the struggle with that accursed scoundrel risk a fresh defeat and fresh ridicule no no and again no and thus is brought about this unprecedented inadmissible inconceivable disgraceful situation that Arsène lupin the hardened thief the impenitent criminal the robber-king the emperor of burglars and swindlers is able to-day not clandestinely but in the sight and hearing of the whole world to pursue the most formidable task that he has yet undertaken to live publicly under a name which is not his own but which he has incontestably made his own to destroy with impunity four persons who stood in his way to cause the imprisonment of an innocent woman against whom he himself has accumulated false evidence and at the end of all despite the protests of common sense and thanks to an unavowed complicity to receive the hundred millions of the mornington legacy there is the ignominious truth in a nutshell it is well that it should be stated let us hope, now that it stands revealed, that it will influence the future conduct of events. At any rate, it will influence the conduct of the idiot who wrote that article, said Lupin with a grin. He dismissed Mademoiselle Lavassar, and rang up Major Dastrignac on the telephone. Is that you, Major? Perenna speaking. Yes, what is it? Have you read the article in the Écho de France? Yes. Would it bore you very much to call on that gentleman and ask for satisfaction in my name, "'Oh, a duel! It's got to be, Major. All these sportsmen are wearying me with their lucubrations. They must be gagged. This fellow will pay for the rest.' "'Well, of course, if you're bent on it. I am, very much.' The preliminaries were entered upon without delay. The editor of the Echo de France declared that the article had been sent in without a signature, typewritten, and that it had been published without his knowledge. But he accepted the entire responsibility.' that same day at three o'clock don luis perenna accompanied by major d'astrignac another officer and a doctor left the house in the place du palais bourbon in his car and followed by a taxi crammed with the detectives engaged in watching him drove to the parc des princes while waiting for the arrival of the adversary the comte d'astrignac took don luis aside My dear Perenna, I ask you no questions. I don't want to know how much truth there is in all that is being written about you, or what your real name is. To me you are Perenna of the Legion, and that is all I care about. Your past began in Morocco. As for the future, I know that whatever happens, and however great the temptation, your only aim will be to revenge Cosmo Mornington, and protect his heirs. But there's one thing that worries me. Speak out, Major. Give me your word that you won't kill this man. Two months in bed, Major. Will that suit you? "'Too long. A fortnight. Done.' The two adversaries took up their positions. At the second encounter, the editor of the Echo de France fell, wounded in the chest. "'Oh, that's too bad of you, Perenna," growled the Comte d'Astrignac. "'You promised me, and I've kept my promise, Major.' The doctors were examining the injured man. Presently one of them rose and said, "'It's nothing. Three weeks' rest, at most. Only a third of an inch more, and he would have been done for.' "'Yes, but that third of an inch isn't there,' murmured Perenna. Still followed by the detector's motor cab, Don Luis returned to the Faubourg Saint-Germain, and it was then that an incident occurred which was to puzzle him greatly and throw a most extraordinary light on the article in the Echo de France. End of Chapter Five, Part One.